The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. So we want to continue on. Uh, we're first going to look at verse 28 through verse 37, and then we'll look at verse 38 through verses 38 through 44. So follow along with me as I start in verse 28. And as I said, we'll read to verse 37. It says, and when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then, when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? I want to stop there before we continue on. We see that the conversation that Jesus was having with Martha had ended. She had declared her trust in him as the Christ, as the Son of God, as the Messiah, As the Savior, she makes that statement in verse 27. And so in verse 28, we see that Scripture tells us after saying this to Christ, she turns and she goes home because she wants to go get Mary. Because if you remember, Mary didn't follow her out. Mary was at home. And so she goes secretly to Mary because there was a lot of people in the home. Uh, The home was very active. One of the things that was common in this culture was actually buy mourners, buy people, purchase people who would come and do some Morning, but also it seems as if uh, their family had some influence because we see a good amount of people, it seems, from Jerusalem made their way out to this funeral to be with the family, uh, to spend time with the family. Also, they seem to have a pretty big house that they could house Jesus and all the disciples seem to be of no problem. And so, and then later, uh, when Mary anoints Jesus's feet, it's a very expensive uh, ointment that she uh, that she uses, and so. It seems like uh, they had a, a lot of people there, but, but Martha wanted to go to Mary and wanted Mary to have some time maybe alone with Jesus. And so she goes to Mary secretly and says, hey, you know, Jesus isn't in town yet. He's out there. You need to go. You need to go out and see him. And as soon as Mary hears that, it says she gets up and she heads out. Now, the, now the problem is, is everybody notices what happens. Now, if you've ever been to funerals, you've ever been a part of anything, uh, I've seen this happen a million times. Where did so-and-so go? I need to go check on them. Maybe they're freaking out. You know, maybe this happened. No, no they're going to the bathroom. Leave them alone. They, have, they need to be on their own. All right, there's just a care. There's a concern. I'm not saying there's anything uh, wrong with that at all. But they follow her so that she's not going to have a quiet moment with Jesus. She's not going to get that opportunity because people go with her. They assume that she's going to the tomb uh, to continue mourning, and to continue weeping. And so when she meets Jesus out on the road, she falls at his feet. And the way that she talks to Jesus is very similar to the way that Martha did, right? 
It says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The way that I read this with Mary might be maybe the little different is almost, it seems to come out more to me that Mary expected Jesus to come and heal Lazarus and he didn't. Almost more of a hurting that she had in her heart. Even a questioning of why, why didn't this happen? And again, I think many of us have been in this situation before of, of just wondering, why no healing? Why no help? Why no answer? Why no voice? Why, why is this not coming? And again, we don't get the answer maybe that we want from Jesus here. And in fact, Mary doesn't really get an answer at all because Jesus doesn't really respond to her that we see. Because look at, look at verse 32. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in spirit and was troubled, and he said, where have you laid him? There's no, no comforting of Mary that we, that we see here. There's no picking her up and giving her a hug and saying, I know, but it's going to be okay. I know, don't, don't worry. She, she doesn't even get what Martha got, right? Of, I'm the resurrection and the life. He doesn't reiterate that again. Like, hey, didn't Martha go tell you this? Jeez, she's already failing me, right? We don't see that here either. Jesus really has no response. He asks to go to the tomb, and it says that he, that he groans in his spirit, and it it continues on to the verse that all kids like me growing up in church just absolutely loved. Jesus wept because it was so easy to remember until they asked you where it was found and you said, oh, I don't know that one. I just know it's a verse. And you have to say I'm correct because it is a verse. But Jesus wept. I really wanted to understand what this was in, in studying this passage and actually had a lot of conversations and a lot of talk uh, with people over this passage, because we see that Jesus obviously is moved here. He's moved in a, in a big way. My, my question was, why? My question is, is what, what has caused him to move? I mean, if, if you look in verse 36, the Jews said, see how he loved him. But that's the Jews saying that. It's not, it's not us being told he wept because he loved Lazarus. Because to me, that doesn't make sense because Lazarus is about to come back to life. And so I don't believe it was weeping because Lazarus had died. I think there's two options here. And I want to preface everything I'm going to say from here until we get to the next set of verses to say, I want to say these things very carefully. Okay. And so uh, hear these words in a very loving way. And I'll try to point out the sticky parts when I when I get to it. But I think there's two options here for Jesus's emotions. The first one is what I think we see at the surface level, that he does have compassion for his friends, that there is this care within his heart. We have to remember that Jesus was fully God, yes, but he was also fully man, also fully man. And now a lot of times we want to latch on to a particular part of Christ in that, you know, in, in certain situations. But in all situations, he was fully God and he was fully man. And so his friend, Lazarus, whom he loved, is dead. He's walked into a situation where Martha and Mary, two ladies that he loves, are just hurting. They're mourning. Those who are attending this funeral are crying and, 
and they are mourning. And you have to believe that in his humanity, Christ is feeling this. He's sensing the hurt that they have as, as anybody does. You know, you can walk into a, a funeral home and you, know, you don't know what situation you're going to face. And sometimes you walk in and it's, I don't want to say upbeat, but it's not as down as you think it was going to be. And you think, okay, this is not what I was expecting. But then there's other funerals that you walk into and it's just, it's just so weighty. It's just so difficult. It's just so hard. Maybe the person was young when they passed away or whatever it may be. And you just don't have the words to say. And it, it troubles you even in your in your spirit and in your being, it's hard to be a part of. And I would have to think that Christ here is experiencing that in some sense of just hurting for his friends and, and hurting because they are hurting and caring for them in that. I think that's one sense of this. The other one, though, is I think he's troubled by what he's seeing play out before him. I think he's troubled because he sees too much grief from people who say, yes, I believe you're the resurrection and the life. Yes, I believe the resurrection in the last day. Treating death as if they were pagans and treating the death ceremony much like the pagans do of mourning and, and weeping very extensively, acting as if there's no real hope at all in this situation. And I think, he's, I think he's troubled by that. I think he's hurting by that. I think he's understanding the, even though he always has because he's God, try to follow me here. He's, he's really understanding in his humanity the, the depth of sin and the confusion that it brings in everything. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Death for the Christian is very different than death for everybody else. And that's something that I think we need to understand. And so as we look at both of these options for Jesus, I really do believe it's both of these are true. I don't think you can just pick one of these out. Again, I think it's very, I don't know, very loving, we might say, to say, oh, look at the compassion he had for them. That's the compassion we should have for them. And so we all are going to act like teenage girls, you know, when the one comes forward and starts crying, they all start crying. I mean, that's just what they do. And that's, that's what it means to be a Christian and to care for somebody, right? That's, that's how you should, should act. But no, that's not it. I do think that's part of it again. But I think it's all of these things that I said. And, and the reason I say this is because we see other verses, right? Isaiah Chapter 53, the very beginning of verse 3, in prophesying about the Christ, it would say, he was despised and rejected by men. But notice this, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So he has an understanding of grief. He has an understanding of, of sorrow and what that feels like. And I believe that Jesus is, is definitely feeling that here. He, he understands that. So as equally true as his compassion is, I think also is his understanding of the corruption of sin. And I think so often we see this with death. And this is where I want to tiptoe and be very careful. I don't want to step on a landmine, so please help me. We see that sin equals death. We see that in scripture. The result of sin is death. 
And so whenever somebody passes away, it's because of sin, not maybe because of their individual sin that they did. Sin, sin equals death. The sin in this world, we're all going to die. It's just how it is. But the way that we deal with death can be very sinful. Now, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, if you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, you know it tells us there's a time for everything. And then when you get down to verse 4, it says, it says very right there, there is a time to mourn. It says that. And so it is very appropriate for us to have times of mourning. Because there are things that we should mourn over. In fact, I would say, I know in my life personally, there probably should be more of it. To where I'm just broken over things that I need to be broken over. And so it's appropriate to mourn. But I think what creeps in a lot of times in our life is when we start mourning, especially in the situation of death, and I just say that because that's what we're dealing with here in this passage. It seems as if we mourn because there's no hope. Grieving in a way that really shows people God is not in control. Or I'm really questioning if God is in control. I don't know why, but I've always struggled at funerals, and I think this is the reason. It's because I've struggled to know, is this really what is good? The way that we do this, is this this right? Is this really well? I remember having a conversation with Amanda before about it. She ended up telling me I was a jerk or something. I don't remember. It didn't go well. I remember that conversation didn't end in my favor. I just don't think I was wording it correctly to get across because oftentimes what I see is I see people making somebody's death almost about them. That's what it seems like. And you get Uncle Joe who comes up and says, I need to say a word. And I always make sure to go to the family. Are you okay if Uncle Joe says a word? I'd rather he not. But if you want him to, we will let him say a word. And sure, And a lot of times Uncle Joe turns it about him, it seems. There's nothing really good about it. There was nothing edifying about the situation. Now, I would say that stuff is expected when I'm at a funeral where there's no signs of salvation, where there's no signs that that they've been saved by the grace of God. I don't know what to do at those funerals. There is no hope that I can offer for the one that has passed away. All I can do is offer the ones who are living, you still have a chance and hope, and it's in Christ. But we can fancy up the situation all all that we want, but I don't really know what the benefit of that is is. And we have to be careful, I think, even as Christians, that when we are mourning, when we are struggling over a loved one who has, has died, that we don't act like the pagans do as if we don't know who's in control. And that goes for when we know the person is a Christian. And I believe even if we are pretty sure the person was not a Christian, because when we become so broken over the fact that they were not a Christian, and that's all we keep going on about. Now they're having to go through this and go through this. I almost feel as if, this is, this is for me personally, as I'm questioning God and his timing. You know, God, if you wouldn't have let that person go, if you would have let me witness to him one more time, maybe they would have said yes. Maybe they would have said this time that they believe. And you see, I think behind that sentiment, which sounds so Christian and so good, is also a sentiment behind it of, God, your timing was off. 
You messed up. I should have had another interaction. Should have had another encounter. We've really been thrust into this situation as of late. Even if you're not a sports fan, I'd have to think you've seen on the news that a big sports athlete passed away just a week ago. Kobe Bryant dying in a helicopter. And now this becomes such a big story because in our life, what we do is we avoid death in our society. We do our best to get, to get rid of death, to not have anything to do with it. Because if you, if you go years back, people held funerals in their homes, right? It was, it was done in your home. People would come over and, and here, here's grandpa in the dining room and this is where we lived and this is a part of life and he passed away. And if you go back even farther, maybe you even had to handle the whole situation when grandpa passed away in bed and you'd have to clean everything up. Well, now that's all hands off. Your loved one passes away, you make a phone call, somebody comes in and they take care of everything. You don't see them again until they have makeup on and look as if they're alive. And we do that because death is not something fun. It's not something that we want to talk about. But when a celebrity dies, all of a sudden death gets thrown at us. We, we just can't avoid it. We hear about it and we see the reaction from a pagan world, right? We see the reaction from a world that is lost. It doesn't know what to do with death. It's just being distraught. All of a sudden, life seems very small and the world is wondering, how do we, how do we handle this correctly? And you get people on the one side who are doing tributes and throwing out pictures and saying, I've always loved Kobe Bryant. He's always been my favorite. And you're like, I didn't even know you knew basketball, knew even what that was. And no, I love him. Oh, I, I, he's always been my favorite. But then you also see the opposite side. You see the Christian people sometimes who will say, People die every day and you don't care. Now all of a sudden you care. Is it because he has money? Is it because he's giving you, you know, something, blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden we're, we're angry at people for caring that, that somebody has passed away and somebody died. You see, it becomes uncomfortable. We don't know how to handle death. We don't know what to do with it. As Christians, this should be something that we handle very delicately, but it's something that we handle well because we have the answers that people are seeking after. Someone comes and they say, why did this happen now? Do you know we have an answer for that? We say, well, the Bible tells us that God is perfect in all things, that his plan is perfect and that his timing is perfect. And while I can't answer for you exactly why this happened, I know this, that God is loving and good and this is part of his perfect plan. I mean, it might not be an answer that they wanna hear, but it's the truth, it's the truth of scripture. If they look and they say, what is, what is the point of all of this if we're just gonna die? I'm not promised tomorrow, so then what is, what is the point of all of this? Well, Christian, we better have an answer for that. Well, there is a point to all this. It's we have a God in heaven who loves us, who would send his son to die on the cross for, for our sins so that there is a point to all of this. My life has meaning. My life has a point because he has given it meaning by saving me by allowing me to be his. And so when we look at Jesus here being troubled in spirit, when we see him uh, weeping, when you see him groaning, that word for groaning is actually horse snorting, that, that noise, that's, that's, that's the word that happens there. Almost an anger behind it, a real hurting behind it. 
I have to think and believe that it's both. He has compassion for his friends, but he's seeing the effects of sin. And he's groaning within because of it. And he knows where he's headed. That very soon he's headed to the cross to deal with this situation. To deal with the situation so that there will be hope and so that death will no longer reign supreme. He knows that he's going there. And we're seeing that start, which will eventually lead to him in the garden, sweating drops of blood, just dealing with everything that's going on. I I believe it's starting here with Lazarus. All right, verse 38 through 44. We won't go to the end of the chapter. It says, Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave cloths, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, loose him and let him go. We talked about this a little bit this morning, but Jesus asked for the stone to be removed and Martha speaks up. Martha says, no, he's going to stink at this time. There is a, there is a stench and no doubt after, after four days in this situation, the body would be decomposing. It wouldn't be smelling good. The Jews did not embalm the, those who had died. Instead, what you would see them do is they would take cloths and they would, they would wrap the body and within the cloths, they would put ointments and things that smelt good to try to just at least mask the, mask the smell. And so I, I don't blame Martha at all for not wanting to see her brother in this situation or, or even want to, want to smell that. That's not something that anybody is going to want to experience. And so Martha is saying, no, I, I'd rather not do that. There's no point. Maybe, I don't, I don't know, just trying to get in her head. Maybe she just thought, maybe Jesus wants to see him one last time. But no, now's not the time. This isn't the situation. Or maybe there really is a lot of doubt in her heart of what's about to take happen. But it seems like it can be the the right response, even though it didn't align with verse 27 of what she had said that we talked about this morning. And one of the things that we are reminded, I mentioned this this morning, I'll mention it again just because it's in my notes, but how easy sin creeps in and can start to destroy our faith so quickly. I don't want us to forget about that. Martha was truly a Christian, truly loved by the Lord, but yet we do see her slip into sin real quickly. And I think we could all say, man, I, I know how many times I've done that. But yet Christ still works and we see, see Christ still move in her life and in her family's life. But Jesus here challenges Martha's faith. And we see that the stone ends up getting moved. And, and notice what Jesus does not do. He doesn't promise Lazarus's resurrection. But what does he say? What does he say in verse 40? He doesn't say, come on, remove the stone. I'm going to raise him to life. No, Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? The thing that convinces Martha isn't life. What convinces Martha is to be able to see the glory of God revealed. 
That was the big deal. That was the kicker that got her all in. I'm going to see the glory of God. Get the stone out of here. Get it away. Let's see what happens. Let's see what takes place. This is what we should be craving, God's glory, to see God's glory, to be a part of God's glory, to worship him in his glory. So Martha says, remove the stone. She has it removed. Jesus then goes on to pray. He says a prayer that's been talked about a lot. We notice within the prayer, he doesn't ask the father for anything. Instead, it's a prayer of thanksgiving. He lifts his eyes up to the father and he just says, thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I'm saying this because of everybody who's standing around here. I want them to hear it. I want them to know that they may believe that you sent me. That is why I'm saying this prayer. Jesus knew what was going to happen. He'd known this from the very beginning. We've seen this in his great sovereignty. This was his plan all along. It was being played out. It's why he waited two days, right? All this stuff is happening just how he would. And so there was no need at this point to go to the father and say, please, father, heal him, raise him from the dead. No, Jesus knew what was going to happen, but he prays this prayer so that everybody around will know exactly what is happening. And then Jesus raises Lazarus, but you have to love how he does it. If we are a church centered on the word of God, we have to love how Jesus does this. You know, again, if this is me, I'm going to be showy. I am. I'm going to be showy. I'm going to do something fancy. I'm going to be like, hold on, I got to walk in the tomb for a minute. I want you to shut it. Shut the tomb. Just shut me in, all right? And then I want you to count to 10. And after you count the 10, you, you roll that bad boy open and you watch what's about to happen. I mean, that's, I think that's just our nature. I think that's just what we would, we would do. Something this special. But no, Jesus doesn't go in and touch Lazarus. Jesus doesn't get a huddle of people around him. He doesn't do anything. All he does is he speaks and the dead comes to life. The word came as flesh and dwelt among us. And when the word spoke, the dead came back to life. The task that he wanted to be done got done, not by sending workers to go do it, not by taking something and forming something and boom, having it done. No, he spoke and it happened. You are dead. You're now alive, Lazarus. Come on, get out of there. And here he comes waddling out of the tomb, wrapped in his cloths. And the next thing Jesus says is, come on, loose him and let him go. The power of the word of God is beyond comprehension. When God speaks, absolutely nothing can resist him. Not even the dead. Not even the dead can resist him. For those of us who are Christians, this has to well inside of us, just thanksgiving and just and just hope beyond mention that the God that we serve is powerful enough to make the dead rise again. Is powerful enough that when there is nothing to speak and there's light, to speak again and there's dark, to speak and to see water form and land form and to speak and to see man be made. That's the power of our God. The world bows down at its idols. 
and worships its idols and praises its idols for the things that its idols can do, the spectacular things that can be done. But we worship a God who, when he speaks, it happens, that nothing can touch him. Now, again, with all fairness to the whole Kobe Bryant thing, we can see the things that are laid at the idol of Kobe Bryant outside the Staples Center. Flowers and wreaths and drawings and all these things. And I'm not mad that those people are doing it. I, I'm, I'm glad they're honoring him, and that's, that's perfectly fine. But sadly, for many of those people, he's their idol. He's who they worship. And they can get on their knees and they can beg and they can plead. He's not coming back to life. Man doesn't have that power. You can carve for yourself some image and bow down to it and pray to it and treat it like the prophets of Baal and ask Baal to cast down fire. But we can stand there all day and nothing's going to happen. Absolutely nothing will happen. But the God that we serve as Christians, when he speaks, nothing can resist. And so what we see happening in this picture is we see what God has done for us, for me and for you. That though we are dead in our sin, though we're dead in our trespasses, though we have no hope, though we're like David who would say, I was born in iniquity in my mother's womb. I've always been a sinner. I've always been separated. I've been born dead, basically. What we cannot do, our great God has done for us. He's called us by name. He's called me by name. Tim, you are mine. Come to life. Loose him. Loose him. The chains are loose. Set, set him free. Hey, maybe, maybe you... Know how that feels. You know, that I remember being saved by the grace of God. I was very young. And as I started to, to learn more, I still felt like I needed to be loosed of some, some things, not of my sin, not of salvation, but just even an understanding. I kind of got that picture here as I was, I was reading this. I remember thinking, man, this is the job of the church. It's almost like God telling the church family, hey, go and loose him. Go help him out. Get, he's stammering around up there. He's going to fall down and bonk his head or something. Help him out. Free him up. Right? Teach him. Train him. This is what God has done for us. We get to walk out of that grave of sin, that shame, that guilt, all of that weight that is holding us down, that is completely crushing us. When God speaks our name, it all must leave. It all must vanish. It all has to go away. It has no hope. It has no place for us because of his word, because of his truth. That's why I can't get away from encouraging people enough to be in the word of God for it to change you, not just for book knowledge, not just so you can outsmart people, not so you can just come up to somebody who's teaching and say, I think, I think that is actually equivalent to three quarters. You said two quarters. I think it's three quarters. You're wrong. I can't trust you anymore. No, that's not the purpose of studying God's word. The purpose of studying God's word is so that it takes an effect in our life. It impacts us. It changes us because only the word of God can do that in our hearts and in our lives. And the promise that God has given us is it will do that, right? His word will not return to him void. It will have an impact on our life. It will 
change us and it'll be a part of the good things that God has in store for us. Well, verse 45 to verse 57, you can read that on your own and you can spend some time in there, but you'll see that in Jesus doing this, we don't get some big story of him hugging Lazarus and spending all kinds of time with Lazarus. We don't, we don't get that. It'd be nice to see maybe what had happened, but instead it goes straight into something kind of negative. Some of the Jews who are there run off to Jerusalem. They let the Pharisees and the Sadducees know what happened. Now, I don't know if they're tattling or I don't know. They might've been running into town like you guys won't believe what just happened. The savior is here. I saw him raise someone from the dead. And the Pharisees didn't like what they had to hear. And so this set in motion to where they would say, if anybody sees him, you come let us know. We must seize him. He needs to die. And actually, the high priest would say something, not realizing what he's saying. I I do want to point this out. But Caiaphas, it says in verse 49, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people And not that the whole nation should perish. Absolutely, Caiaphas. What you're about to set in motion is actually what the world needs. Yes, this one man needs to die because he's the God man. And when you kill him, when you put him on that cross, I'm sorry, but he's he's not going to stay dead very long. And he's actually going to save the nations, not just your nation. He's going to save the nations. Aren't you thankful for that? We look at that and we get mad at those people who ran into Jerusalem but I think we have to be kind of glad they did. Apart from that, where would we be? It set in motion what Jesus wanted all along. He knew this was happening. This is why he didn't whisper, Lazarus, come forth. He screamed it because he knew what it meant. It would set in motion the perfect plan that God had had for him to go to the cross, for him to die, for him to be buried, and for him to raise from the dead. Well, I'm looking forward the next uh, few weeks, really up until Easter, We're going to be looking at the upper room and look at the triumphal entry and then Christ and his dealings in John uh, in the upper room with his disciples and that intimate time that he has with them right before he gets arrested, right before he would go to the cross and die for sins. And so I hope that you'll study this. I hope that you'll uh, read it and I hope that you'll be encouraged by it as you take your time uh, to do that. Let's bow together. Let's pray. Thank God for his word. Thank God for the truth that he's given us. God, I am very thankful for your word. I'm thankful for how good you are to us. God, I'm thankful that this story was written down for us to see and the truths of it. God, the power that you have to speak and it happens. God, so many people in this life want to have that power. They want to be able to speak and people will go do whatever they tell them to do. They think they have that power. They think they have that control. But God, how foolish they are. You and only you have the power to speak and it to happen. Nothing can resist your voice. And God, I'm thankful for that. God, I'm thankful that you've called me by name, not because I'm special or anything. The Bible says just because you loved me. And so, God, I ask that you would help me to spend the rest of my life doing my best to love you because of the love that you've shown me. God, I pray that as a church family, we would be so united in the love of Christ together because we understand what you've done for us, that it's 
It's not about us. It's not even about our preferences. It's not even about our desires. It's about you and your desires and your preferences and what you would want. God, I pray that we would just be united around that together, understanding that you've called each of us by name, that you care for us greatly so much that you would raise us from the death of our sin to a new life of walking with you, to an eternal life spent praising and glorifying you. So God, I pray that that would just be so encouraging to each of us as we go this week. God, help us to be in your word. Help us to praise you. Help us to trust in your strength. Oh, we'll see the things of this world and how difficult it is. And God, help us though not to stumble. God, in the difficulties of this world, when we face situations that we just maybe feel so distraught, God, I pray that we would live as if we have hope, not like the pagans do, but God, to hold on to those, that hope. God, that doesn't mean we're not going to mourn. That doesn't mean that we're not going to hurt. God, we have to do it in a way that we understand. Jesus Christ is alive and our hope will never die. Our hope will never fade away. Nobody can take that. Nothing can take that. Not even death itself. So God, help us to rejoice in that. God, be with us now as we leave this place. Watch over us. Keep us true to your word. Help us to love you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.